This is the Indiana Deer News Podcast, your number one resource for anything and everything that has to do with the wild deer herd in Indiana. On this episode, we are blessed to have a conversation with the Director of the Division of Fish and Wildlife for the State of Indiana, Amanda Wiestefeld. We also touch on a new study which is being conducted which all deer hunters across the state are being called upon to see if you want your voice to be heard in it. That and so much more on this episode of the Indiana Deer News Podcast. Welcome to this episode of the Indiana Deer News Podcast. I am your host, Ty Miller. And as always, we're here to chat deer. On today's episode, as you've already kind of known from the title and the teaser, we sit down and have an amazing conversation, a very informative conversation, with Amanda Wiestefeld, the director of the Division in Fish and Wildlife. It's a conversation that I hope, whether you are on your way into work, you're at work, just don't tell your boss that you're listening to this, or I won't tell your boss that you're listening to this, or on your way home, or maybe doing habitat work, wherever you might find this episode, I think this is a great episode for you to share, especially because there's going to be a lot of things that Amanda and I are going to touch on that I think a lot of hunters either may not be aware of, or truly have no idea about. Oftentimes, revenue and licenses and what qualifies for the federal aid and the acts and such that all generates that we're going to touch on that and it is an important it is an incredibly important thing if you care about the funding and the preservation because of that funding of our uh, natural resources public lands the millions and millions of acres that you and i own uh, these things are crucial they are pivotal to their survival um, so we're going to, we, we touch on that, but first I wanted to lead, uh, this episode with an email, which I received a few days back. Um, I think it was two days ago. I got this email from Joe Caudell, which many of you guys know him as the deer biologist. I think his actual title now is like assistant director office of science and research or something like that. But, uh, he was letting a bunch of us know and to spread the word that there is a researcher from the Indiana University in Bloomington from the Luddy School of Informatics and Computing. They are currently conducting a study to understand perceptions of initiatives by the Indiana Department of Natural Resources, or the DNR, to increase data transparency and trust with the public, something that we all know Joe is a huge advocate for, and me and Amanda touch on that um, harp on that and it, it, it is whether you agree or disagree I think one thing we all can agree on is that you know that is one thing that you can tell that Joe wants the the more transparent and the more informed and the more interactive and the more open um, the better so foremost I'm sorry I, I kind of stopped reading there for a second but to continue reading it says foremost we want to improve connections between deer hunters and the Department of Natural Resources DNR. Um, this study, they are seeking adults 18 years or older who participate in hunting of deer in Indiana who are willing to interview with us for about an hour about their experiences with the DNR, its data collection and sharing and hunting. Your identity will be held in confidence in reports in which the study may be published. So your, your anonymity 
is is guaranteed. It'll be held in confidence. Um, the the link is in in the in the email then, and I will put this link in the show notes. So if you if you if whatever streaming app service you are utilizing, if you can't read the show notes or click on the link, find the Facebook page Indiana Deer News Podcast. Find where I post this episode link on there, and you will find it either there or you will find it in the comments of that post on Facebook. I will make sure it's there. Or you can just simply go to the www.indianadeernewspodcast.com, click on the podcast tab, find this episode, which is 003, the third episode, or the title with Interview with Amanda Wiestefeld, the, the Director of Division of Fish and Wildlife or something to that point. And it will be in the show notes there. So there's multitude of different ways, but the link actually links you to the Hunter, Hunter study too. And I'm going to actually click on that right now. And of course, my, it's not working right, but that'll click you and you have to, I do know I went through the process. I'm going to be uh, attempting to do it. Um, my interview times are tough and they would prefer that you are able to be interviewed down in Bloomington. However, it did kind of make a note that there's a chance that possibly you could work with them and coordinate a time or a place that would work for both. Um, and there's a chance, just to put it out there, if you go to that link and you're and you're looking at it and you sign up, there is a chance that they may request some uh, real-life experience time with you, whether it be working in the field, um, doing habitat work, scouting, hanging stands, uh, things of that nature, hunting maybe even. Um, they are going to do some some follow-up experience type portions of the study. So just wanted to pass that along. It's a request from Joe from the Department of uh, Natural Resources. They want our voice to be heard. And this study is another way for us to express that. Um, you know, whether that's positive, negative, constructive, destructive. Well, I mean, I guess... As long as you're honest and you want what's best, it's not going to be destructive, but you get what I mean. But uh, be sure to check that out. There was one other email which I thought maybe some people would want. Actually, I got two. So uh, another email is every year, if you go to shopinstateparks.com, they are running a special right now. It's called the Go Pack. You can choose to get uh, as part of your options the $40 State Park Inns gift card or a $40 camping gift card for the state parks. Those are, you can use those on different, here's a little thing. So if you've ever, if, if you've ever looked into this, um, the inns gift card portion can actually be used at any of the seven state park lodging facilities, but also the Pete Dye designed golf course at Fort Harrison State Park in Indianapolis. I'm sure there's some golfers listening to us. This is a great way to support, have entries into the parks and such for the entire year. Also get that little added benefit and slight discount um, and get the $40 gift card. So that was one email that I had come in from the Department of Natural Resources. The other one you probably already saw on the Facebook page. If you don't follow the Facebook page, you need to. There was uh, the NRC agenda was posted and my computer just crashed. So I'm going to lead into uh, this a little bit off script. But uh, the NRC agenda is posted March 17th. They they will be meeting 
and the agenda is posted, the documents that support that are posted. If you need to or you're interested in seeing that, you can actually go to their website or you can go to the Indiana Deer News Podcast Facebook page, scroll through the postings. It should be one of the most recent ones where I post the NRC agenda and the link that you can go to to then get the the support documents that go with it. So the DNR made some recommendations there. I'm not going to get into those. But without further ado and less chatting before the interview, got to sit down with Amanda Wiestefeld. Actually called her the other night, had an amazing conversation, lasts about an hour. So just forewarning, this is going to be a longer episode and this conversation is a little long. So sorry for the intro being as long as it's been. Tried, I wanted to keep the intro under 10 minutes. I think I've accomplished that. But without further ado, this is the recording of that conversation with Amanda Wiestefeld. All right. Today, everybody that's listening, we are blessed with Amanda Wiestefeld. Did I say that right, Amanda? You sure did. Nailed it. I was worried about that, to be honest with you. Um, so Amanda is the new director of the Division in Fish and Wildlife, and I thought she would just make a perfect guest to come on, first guest of the year this year, and sit down and just kind of share with us briefly who she is um, and what her role as a director of Division in Fish and Wildlife. So first and foremost, thank you very much for uh, coming on and talking with us. Oh, it's a pleasure. I appreciate the invite. So I guess maybe just we'll start off really briefly because outside of news headlines or things like that, you know, I think it was last September you were appointed. Does that sound right? Yeah, it was mid-August, September. Yep. Yep. So a lot of us that maybe saw it come across our news feeds or saw a news article, we may just know the name, but we don't actually know who you are. And even fewer friends of mine, even, you know, you get talking about the Division of Fish and Wildlife, the forestry, DNR, it's all confusing to some of them. So hopefully... We'll shed some light on that, but just if you could just give us a condensed, brief version of just who is Amanda Wiestefeld, and since this is a deer podcast, one of the things I'm going to get in the habit of asking guests, if you have a deer memory, share one, just brief one with that kind of sticks out to you. Sure. So, I mean, I have grown up, you know, Amanda has grown up outdoors. My family was very outdoorsy family, and I'm pretty certain that's the whole reason that I set where I set today is, you know, we, we love to play out outside and whether it was um, squirrel hunting or, you know, crappie fishing at Hardy Lake or camping and boating, like that's kind of my fondest childhood memories was, was being outdoors with my family and that, and my parents were both kind of factory workers. And so they're always like, I just hope you guys could find a career that you could go in every day to work and be really happy about that and excited to go to work. And so they pushed my brother and I to think about career paths that, you know, we could feel fulfilled through. And yeah, I got lucky enough to decide that natural resources was a career field. I don't even know how, cause I didn't know anybody that worked in the field, uh-huh. <laughs> but, I, but I stumbled on it and, and I guess was brave enough to go try to find a job at Hardy Lake whenever I was 18 and, and somehow got lucky enough to get in and, and DNR is a pretty tight family. And once you, once you're kind of in, as long as you, you know, are a hard worker, they, they take care of you. And so I, I've always felt like they've taken care of me and afforded me a ton of experience. And, and I guess the rest is just hard work and, and good fortune. And here we are. That's awesome. So, and then the deer, the deer hunting memory, I guess, or yeah. story. I don't know. 
my um so today i'm married my husband's actually a conservation officer some people know that not everybody knows that but awesome. um, we have two kids and two boys and and we we love to hunt and fish um that's kind of what what we do and how we raise our kids but with him being in law enforcement those those guys don't often get out on mm. those opening days they get out a bunch like don't let amphibia there they get afforded <laughs> a lot of fun opportunities but um opening weekends are not usually the time that they get out in the woods and so when my kids were younger they needed somebody to go with them and so they whether it was they probably see it as maybe not as as lucky as going with dad but they got stuck with mom all the time and my f- most fond memories i always called it clown car hunting you know it's me and the boys on whether it's youth weekend or opening weekend of firearms we'd be sitting out in the in the tree stand and and trying to get a deer and i have we were wildly successful to be honest (laughs) in the middle of clown car hunting and it really is clown car hunting when you get two young kids and (laughs) and an adult female and in a tree stand with two guns and you know bundled up trying to stay warm but we always managed to find success and i don't know i look back on those days and you can't get enough of them and you know now my kids are old enough they go on their own so they don't need mom sitting in the sand with them but that's those days are priceless and I'll, I'll never forget them. And I hope hopefully my kids would tell you it's a good time too. Right. So that is awesome. I know as a new father, first son was born last September and I just, I can't wait. I remember when we, I found out he was going to be born early September. I was like, that's right near hunting season kind of selfishly. But then I'm like, man, that's going to be so cool when he gets older. It it will be. It's just going to be awesome. Yeah, you'll love it, and every moment you get a chance, like that, there is not a better, better hunting experience than spending it, spending it with any kid. But your own kid is is absolutely priceless, and I have been fortunate to be able to do a lot of those kinds of things with my boys, and and they're the they're the memories I hold the dearest yeah. and closest to me. So. That is awesome. So if I heard you right, and you said that you started working for the DNR when you were eighteen. I did. Wow. So what were some I'm of your... I'm only like 29 now. I mean, I crammed a lot. <laughs> so just 10 years of experience on the job. Right? Yeah. No, that's... We're, we're pushing 25 years of experience now. That's awesome. Um, and I've worked for... My first job was with Hardy Lake, which back in the day, that was a reservoir property, which reservoirs don't even exist today. They got rolled in with the state parks. Mm-hmm. And so I worked for the Division of Reservoirs for three summers, actually, whenever my first year out of high school and then two years into college and, and then um, kind of moved, I moved to the Division of Forestry for a, a seasonal position and worked there for a year. And, and then I was a co-op student through college and I co-opted with the Division of Fish and Wildlife. So while in school, I was also getting, you know, the, that time with the Division of Fish and Wildlife and um, did a few stints there, and my first full-time job out of college was was with Fish and Wildlife, and actually that's that's where I've sat ever since. And so, okay, it's I don't know. It's been a fun it's been a fun journey, and I've had really cool jobs and a lot of great people. Yeah. So I I didn't put this in any of the bullets uh, discussing with you prior, so this might be a little bit of a surprise. But I just wanted to express to you that when when Mark writer who for those listening that maybe are have no clue who that is he was the director before you yep um how many years did he serve do you i don't remember um i think it was 11 and he was our longest serving director and so mark 
was there a while and and really left a legacy for us. Yes, I can remember when Mark, you know, was going to be stepping down, and there was a lot of names kind of swirling out there. And uh, I've been to the Indiana Sportsman's Roundtable and some other organizations and such. And whenever your name came up, I just want you to know that it was always brought up with respect, admiration, and just hope that you were the person. So <laughs> I, I know sometimes it's nice to hear that, you know, in a, in a especially in a servitude role like you have. I know sometimes the dissenting opinions can kind of be louder than everything else. And I just want you to know that there's a lot of people out there that think highly of you. I I appreciate that. And I actually spent my last Saturday with the guys at the round table. And I, I mean, I can't say enough. Those guys give time all year round Mm -hmm. and, and they really truly care about the division. They care about conservation. And those are the people that I, I mean, I've worked with those guys since I was, you know, not 18, but really dang close to that. Right. And they've watched me grow up. And I hope what they see is I've always been one that would listen to them. Mm-hmm. I'd always, you know, try to take what they, their concerns were and turn that into some positive action for, yep. for conservation and for, you know, the sport, whatever their interests were. And I, I hope that it was mutual. It's mutual respect is what I hope. Yes. I have a ton of respect for those guys too. It's been noticed. I guess is what I'm trying to say. We notice that. We notice that heart and that, that mindset and that servant. You have like a servant's heart is one of the things that I always would hear. So well, that's, I appreciate that. So it does, it does help. <laughs> right. Um, so those of, that are listening that maybe they just don't know, what are the roles and responsibilities that now you stepped into now last year? You know, we're going on about, what, eight months into your, your yeah, tenure buddy. here. What is the director of Fish and Wildlife and what do you do? Well, I always say that, you know, Fish and Wildlife um, has a really broad, um, a broad spectrum of activities that we cover. Mm -hmm. And I think folks often don't realize how broad scoping of a division that it is within the department. And, you know, the things that get noticed with Fish and Wildlife are, you know, our Fish and Wildlife areas are, 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 you know, just our regulations for hunting and fishing. But there is, you know, a ton of private lands work that happens within the Division of Fish and Wildlife that I get to oversee. All of our fisheries and research and um, science piece of the outfit I get to oversee. And we have an environmental unit that um, anybody that's that's building in floodplains, there's a whole um, piece that my staff get to over oversee where they're making sure that the impacts that that building in a floodplain Mm-hmm. isn't having negative impacts on our fish and wildlife resources and the fauna, flora and fauna around that. And so it's it's a much more diverse division than I think the average, um, for sure, the average public knows. And I think mm-hmm. even guys that know the Division of Fish and Wildlife that they know, um, I think they just don't realize all of the permitting permitting aspects and research aspects that, that the division um has their finger on and that we're ultimately responsible for, you know, through our legislative authority. So. Sure. Now on that last little bit, cause it caught my ear, I work in the real estate business and, and valuation and appraisal type stuff, the yeah. building on wetlands or uh, floodplains and such. Is yeah. that something yeah. that you guys work hand in hand with the army Corps of engineers by chance? Is there yeah. A and of... so there are different processes, but sure. yeah, um, there's a lot of times that guys that need a, uh, permit through either the department of environmental management mm-hmm. the core 
and then they'll need a Department of Natural Resources permit. And it all goes through our division of water. So it starts in a different division. But if it has impacts on natural resources, um, specifically the fish and wildlife resource part, mm -hmm. um, we have an entire team of staff that does nothing but review those permits and make sure that um, the mitigation's happening appropriately, you know, that we're, we're leaving, you know, whatever construction that needs to happen, that we're leaving that in as best of, of a situation as we can for, for the resource and, you know, for the future. Gotcha. Gotcha. So this kind of leads into the, you know, you guys all have a very diverse and uh, vast things that you see over or play a role in and yep. there was one quote and i wish the newspaper hadn't used it because i there were sport there were sportsmen out there on some forums like what does she mean by this and all they did was they read one little blurb yep. and they didn't read on so I'd, I'd love to give you an opportunity so the headline was it's not just those who hunt and fish was yep. kind of the tagline that everybody ran with and i was like but yep. you didn't read everything around it so here's your chance. Can you please just kind of elaborate upon that for those that didn't read the, the rest of the article or more of it and what you meant yeah. by that? Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, and that whole, that whole conversation that I had with, with the reporter um, was we were talking about kind of just change in, in agencies, fish and wildlife agencies across the country. And so we, I was really speaking about, you know, big fish and wildlife conservation mm -hmm. management as a whole, not um, not really anything specific to Indiana. I mean, it is things yeah. we're going through in Indiana too, but, um, you know, nationally and here in Indiana, we talk all the time about how um, our agency continues to be, um, continues to evolve. You know, fish and wildlife 40, 50 years ago was was a lot different of an agency than it is today. And, and I mean, the world's a lot different, so so mm -hmm. it makes sense. And and you know, historically, we we really were focused on um, managing game populations yeah. and making sure that you know our regulations were solid and that guys could get out and hunt and fish. And you know, we were leaving things in a good place. Yep. But today, as the world has evolved, you know, we all we have to do is step outside and. And you you see that you know we're becoming more urban, we're becoming more disconnected from the land, and and the public in general expects you know DNR and expects fish and wildlife to respond because they think and we are the we are the agency that oversees um, the management of our fish and wildlife resources, and so whenever they're having you know conflicts with coyotes in their yard or great horned owls or whatever, right? Yep. Um, we're the agency that they're calling, and those people largely don't hunt and fish. I mean, historically, the, whenever those conflicts were happening, you know, people had the tools, I think, to handle those situations themselves. Sure. And today, um, you know, they just, you know, it's largely a very scary situation whenever they have um, coyotes or great horn owls attacking you know their kids playing basketball in the backyard or whatever whatever it is and and so it's pushing us to evolve our programming and, and our expertise of staff mm -hmm. and that was really what the whole conversation was about and and that you know i want at some point in the future for the average citizen to understand the role of the division of fish and wildlife and know that it is a really broad scoping agency and we do offer services to a whole host of people right and 
and it ties into a, a much bigger conversation about our funding and and just the evolution of what a modern fish and wildlife agency looks like and but yeah it's it's the whole quote it's more than just those who hunt and fish really was about we service this really broad population because our job has evolved into you know wildlife disease wildlife conflicts invasive species management things we didn't talk about you know 30 40 50 years ago and so we we have to become a different a different agency because of that yeah i mean there's people that reach out to you guys in the division of fish and wildlife and the dnr and such that they may not hunt and fish, but they want to set up a, a conservation easement plan or, or classify their yeah. land and such like that. And yeah, absolutely. I mean, one of the one of the programs that we've really seen take off in the last couple of years is what we call our Grasslands for Game Birds and Songbirds program. And, you know, a lot of a lot of the landowners that are enrolling, enrolling in those programs are they're not guys that want to go hunt. They want to be able to walk out into their backyard and see um pollinators and and see songbirds but we're putting amazing habitat on the ground which benefit all of those species that we like to hunt too but the the purpose for that landowner isn't isn't to go out and hunt them but we're we're building some really cool relationships where they're okay with hunting and so we're we're starting to to incentivize those folks that want to put that kind of habitat on the land to actually allow hunting on their property so they put this amazing, what they think of as a pollinator habitat on the ground. We think of as, you know, maybe prime woodcock and quail. Mm-hmm. And we're all opening that, that private land now up to public access, which, I mean, that's, that's a really cool opportunity. And I think that program is just going to continue to grow. So yes. I mean, there's a lot, I think there's a lot of synergy if we could just, get a little comfortable with a slightly different view (laughs) right yep no Uh, and just the incredible important i would love to have somebody next to my personal hunting ground have a pollinator strip i mean the impact habitat wise and the cross pollination i don't even think people understand the trickle effect in wildlife that that can cause and we all can benefit from so but that's a whole nother topic yeah that's a whole nother topic but it's Um, really about bigger audiences and just focusing on those things that we have in common because there's a ton of things we have in common it's just yep focusing on that yeah so switching gears kind of a little bit more pinpoint so your overall outlook for deer and deer hunting in the state of indiana is there anything that jumps out to you or comes to the front of your mind that's either maybe a concern a worry a positive is there anything that just kind of jumps out to you i know we wanted to touch a little bit on the cwd surveillance thing i don't know if you want to do that now or if you want to share anything else first well, so I mean, I guess like on the positive side, um, Joe and I were talking, Joe Caudell, our former deer biologist, um, he, and, he, he and I were talking just, I don't know, last week probably. And in my career, and you know, I've not always been like 100% connected with the deer program, but I've always, you always know whenever things aren't going right in the deer program, because it's a big deal for, for the division. And so, you know, deer, deer is a big deal regardless. And for the first time in my career, my 25 years, I mean, I think we can say that, you know, the population seems seems like it's in really good shape. But more importantly, our public believes that the population's in good shape. And they, they seem to have trust that the agency's making good decisions for the population and for the hunter. 
And that to me is, is the biggest win that I could hope for, you know, sitting in the seat that I sit today. Sure. And I think that's a 100% reflection of, of Joe Caudell. Um, I can't say that <laughs> probably enough times that he, he's a tremendous listener and he values everybody's opinions. Yes. And I think he's his most, the most transparent. Um, he's one of the most transparent people that I've ever had the pleasure of working around. And so he's, he's, he's a tremendous leader and we should all be really lucky that we got him here in Indiana. So I know I can't like to keep him. I, that's exactly it. You know, if you are a hunter listening to this, make sure if anything ever comes up, make sure you do whatever you can to ensure that we keep Joe on staff because yes. he has been a tremendous resource. And I know, you know, you said the hunter and it sounds like the mindset in Indiana, people are positive about the deer outlook. Um, yep. I know there's some dissenting opinions out there. I hear about it every day that there's some people oh. that still think that the deer population is a little low in some areas. And, you know, we were hit yep. with EHD last year in some areas in the southern part of the state, which they really got impacted. But yep. as a whole, we're moving in the right direction. And I think you hit the nail on the head when there is a trust building with Joe because he, he reaches out to us. I mean, his deer summaries are what we always dreamed of. And they're 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 morphing into more and more every year, it seems like. You know, this year yep. the harvest data and the ability to go in there and just even go to the county and what weapon yep. was used. I mean, these are things that Joe has ensured he wants out there because he wants the public to, to the more he can release, the more we trust him. And I think there was kind of a distrust there that had formed over the years. And Joe has really stepped in and just changed that whole outlook, in my opinion, at least. Oh, and mine too. And I, I would love to take credit for all of those brilliant ideas, but they aren't mine. They're, they're Joe's 100%. I'm just, I guess, smart enough to say that right there, Joe, is a great idea. Please do that. <laughs> yes, I agree. <laughs> <laughs> so he's a good dude and i think as long as he's he's in indiana you know we're in good hands in that way and and we don't all we're not always you know, going to agree and but you know being able to build that trust and know that whenever you don't agree with the decisions that you can go to him and say man i don't know i'm not sure what we're doing is right yep and know that he's really going to listen because he is and and that doesn't mean he's going to change everything, right? But it means he's really going to listen and try to get to a, a better spot for all of this. hundred percent. I mean, I know some people that have disagreed with some of the decisions that he's made even, but they even say, I trust that he really wants what's best for all of us and the future yep. of deer hunting. Like there's no doubt in anybody's mind. And I think that is a great accomplishment. I do too. And in fact, if that's, if I, if I can just have all of my staff have that kind of mindset that, that Joe has, um, the division's going to just spring forward leaps and bounds and we're working really, really hard to, to instill that kind of like just public service mm -hmm. into our, into our staff. And, and we're talking about like, what does it mean to hire people that have that kind of mindset? And cause it's important. I mean that, you know, it's, you know, our authority says that, you know, we're, we're managing the fish and wildlife resources, but it also says for the people, yeah. And, and that's a very, it's very important to me personally. And, and I know it's very important to Joe and, and as we move forward and, you know, hiring staff and training our current staff, like those are, those are key elements that we're looking to do. Um, and how, like we talk about culture, changing the culture and mm -hmm. that's, that's the kind of culture change that we're looking for in, in the division. And I think for the most part, we, we do a good job of that, but, um, you know, we can always, I always think we can be better. It doesn't matter how good you are today. There's always ways to find improvements and yes. ways for us to be better. So, yeah. 
Well, good deal. Is there anything, any other concerns or positives before we move into kind of the CWD plans? Um, well, I mean, I think those that in itself, I think is, is the biggest win. I mean, largely our, our deer numbers, our deer license sales are, are down and, and that part's, you know, concerning because deer, deer, deer license sales honestly make up a huge chunk of our budget. Mm-hmm. And, and so as you watch that, the decline in license sales, and then you have to start thinking about how do you continue to do business the way you do business, right? Yep. And, you know, that's a concern. And so to say that, you know, we're, we're flying high and things are perfect, um, it, that would, that would be not the case, but. Now for listeners, Amanda, that is not just an Indiana specific issue, correct? No, I don't know. It's, it's not an Indiana specific issue. Um, license uh, hunting numbers, hunting and angling, but largely hunting um, numbers are on a decline across the country. Um, Indiana's no different. I mean, we have some pieces. And so I was talking to the um, Turkey Federation a few weeks ago, and that might be the only um, piece, maybe waterfowl, waterfowl and turkey um, are probably the only piece that have very, very slight upticks. And it's slight. It's more, it's more stable than uptick. Sure. Um, but everything else, small game, deer, are on a more of a decline, and and we, I, don't, I mean, our funding is ninety percent through the sale of hunting and fishing licenses and all of the equipment tax that's associated with PR and and DJ, so Pittman Robertson Act and Daniel Johnson, the State Wildlife Sportfish Restoration Program. Actually, that's that's one of the main reasons why I wanted to have you on is just that misconception or misunderstanding or just lack of knowledge of how that all works. And I know we don't even have enough minutes in a day to really break down the whole entire Pittman-Robertson Act and the Dingle-Johnson Act, but let's circle back to the CWD. And while we're talking about license sales, can you just, you know, you said that the licenses generate the majority of it. Is there a way that you can kind of break that down and explain what exactly does that mean and what is the... PR and the DJ Act. Sure. Yeah. So, you know, our our fish and wildlife budget is is broken. You know, you can break it in a couple of different ways, but you know, generally it's like two big pots of money are our federal dollars, which is our wildlife sport fish restoration, which that is the Pittman Robertson and the DJ funds all combined. And then our license sale, our license dollars. And so those, there's those two big pots, those kind of two giant chunks, and then you can break it down even more. And kind of our license annually, our license um, dollar revenue is about $20, $20 million. Okay. And just a little bit under actually, but we'll just use $20 million because it's a, an easy number to rattle off. Yeah. And the Division of Fish and Wildlife, we split that money. So law enforcement and fish and wildlife share that license revenue because our Division of Law Enforcement obviously has a huge important role in the health and management of our our fish and wildlife resources, right, with just the enforcement piece of it. And so they get, um, it's changed over the years how much fish and wildlife gets and how much law enforcement gets. And, And today, I think we're somewhere in the neighborhood of a, it's not quite 60, 40 with 60 going to law enforcement and 40 to fish and wildlife, but it's like ballpark. It's something like that. And so of that 20, 000, 20 million um, law enforcement would get 60% of it. 
and the Division of Fish and Wildlife gets the, the 40%. Okay. Law enforcement doesn't really get any of the federal dollars, though. And so they're, they're, they get a tiny bit for hunter education, but um, the bulk of their funding either is a general fund line item budget mm -hmm. or it's license sales. And I, I didn't pull their, their funding, but you know, that's some of our revenue goes to law enforcement. And so what's left, you know, we use our license dollars to match that federal pot of money. And, you know, we have to have enough revenue license dollars um, to be able to leverage that against that, the federal money. And it's about a, it's not quite 75, 25, but it, it, it averages out at about a 75 federal 25% state match and and on the pr side so on the wildlife side so pitman robertson is our is our wildlife pot of money mm -hmm. um, it is money that is taken from a, a sales tax um, not a sales tax a, a manufacturer tax and that all gets paid into the the department of federal the federal re revenue um that is the sale of guns and ammunition, the components of firearms. You know, a lot of people think that it's, you know, it's camo and blinds and, and those sorts of things, but it is almost exclusively a firearms ammunition um, tax. And that gets paid back to the state agencies based on their land mass. Okay. And um, the number of certified hunters that they have in the, in the state. And so it's a formula. It's not as simple as that, but that's yeah. basically how they do it. It's, it's a formula that that's consistent and applied across all the states. And so they get this big, you know, pot of money federally, and then Indiana gets their share based on our license certification. So not only are the number of, of licenses sold important to just our revenue, mm -hmm. but it's important to how much of that federal share that we get to, because we can't obviously change our land mass. I don't see us right. you know, swapping land with Kentucky or anything. And so the land mass is going to stay the same. The difference is in our number of certified hunters. So a few of the questions I get about this is what, what qualifies and what not is <clears throat> that's why license sales are so important. Cause that certified, those are certified hunters, correct. That then go towards that calculation of how much Robertson fund we can, we can receive. Yep. Um, yep. Now we're not going to get into whether they should or shouldn't count, but what kind of do land don't do people who, so like I own 23 acres. Um, yep. It's classified as agricultural. I could technically use a landowner tag, but because I hunt elsewhere, I don't. I, right. I, I'm a lifetime license holder. So that's kind of a double jointed question. Do lifetime license holders count? They do right now. Yes. Okay. Um, um, that's changed over the years because the feds change the rules all the time. Right. But currently we can certify our lifetime license holders. And so that's a, that's a positive. Awesome. And then, so then another, another case is somebody who owns land. Uh, my father is an example. he, even if he only had his property, he's still going to buy a license because he, he understands the impact of all this. Yep. But if he didn't and he just utilizes a landowner tag, goes out, harvests a doe and a buck in a given year, does he count using nope. his landowner? Nope. Okay. Nope. Um, the only people that count are people that actually have an issued license. Okay. And um, I think a lot of people get confused. And so, like, you might buy a deer tag. And you might buy your basic hunting license, 
or you might buy a turkey license and your deer, right? Mm -hmm. You as an individual only get counted one time. So you can buy every single type of license that we have or privilege that we have, but you only get counted as, as one hunter. And so it doesn't matter if one guy is, you know, our best customer ever, he still only gets right counted one time so So if you're a landowner out there and maybe you only deer hunt on your property but if you go to public land or a buddy's place to hunt small game and you bought a small game license you're still counting the same as if you did buy a deer yes yep and i think that's a confusion that people often don't understand Mm -hmm. Um, and and it's really hard to decide it's really hard to determine you know how many guys just don't buy anything and are really just utilizing that um, landowner privilege. Sure. And, but when we go and look, and so our data is getting better all the time, right? And so Good. when you go look at uh, check in data, so since things are all electronic now, you can just kind of start to match the check in with an individual and, mm-hmm. and we can run that individual off of our license database. And the number's smaller than what I think all of us kind of expected because guys do. Um, participate in a lot of different ways you know not everybody just shoots deer right so a lot of guys i mean probably most people don't they you know they might go one time rabbit hunt with a buddy or they might you know like like to go up and do a a pheasant hunt up north or whatever whatever the circumstances you know they probably are participating in more than one way which then means they don't do all of that on their own property so they'll need it they'll need a license of some sort that's good to know because I know that's one of the big misconceptions out there um, that a lot of people have written into me over the years or asked me about. Um, they're yep. like, so, I think one guy was like, "Am I stealing money from us that we could have?" But he goes, "I buy," you know, and then he buys a small game license and everything. So I had to explain to him that you're fine. You're, you go buy a deer tag. That's great. You're going to generate a little bit of revenue, but it's not going to be matching for Pittman Roberts at this point because right. you can't double yeah. dip. I tell everybody that if they do nothing else, like the best thing that you can do to support us is to buy that combo license because the combo license allows us to, to take both certification on the fishing side and on the hunting side. And so then we get to bring the, the DJ money in as well as the PR money. And so that $25 in that combination license, basic hunting license and fishing license is the best $25 spent for conservation in Indiana because it ultimately brings back about every year. It's a little different because we don't know, we don't get the exact same dollar amount federally every year, but it's somewhere in the neighborhood of 45 to $50 um, on top of that $25 that we get back. So I, I just want to make sure everybody listening to that right now understood that because that's significant. And I know that's something that we try to educate a lot of people on. So if you buy the combo fishing and hunting license, if that's the only thing you do, it's about a $25 cost, whether that changes or not, who knows, but $25 currently, that's going to generate not only that license sales, which is that first pot you were talking about. It's then typically going to be matched or, or generate through the federal. And because the DJ act, the, the Dingle uh, Johnson act, that's fishing. Yep. Correct. And then yep. the Pittman Robertson one is the hunting. So that actually provi- dips into both essentially. And the state gets back 45 to $50. Correct. I mean, you're almost doubling your money generated. Yeah. Um, it really does. I mean, it's a, 
I mean, it's a huge leverage point, right? And so yeah. that's what our license dollars does is it leverages that federal pot of money. And so, you know, for every dollar that we spend out of our license dollar, we get $3 from the feds is, is pretty much how I like to, to look at it. Cause it, it is a 25, um, 25% we have 25% of the responsibility out of our license fund and then 75% has will come from the feds. So that's amazing. And uh, I think that that cannot be stated enough. If if, it's it's important. (laughs) Yeah. If anybody has any questions on the Pittman Robertson act or anything like that, do you, I think you said before we started and pressed record, you're going to possibly have some links and such that I can put in the show notes. Correct. Yeah, there's the the U.S. Fish and Wildlife website has okay. some really good information. It'll show you like all of the um, the funds that Indiana gets through the years. It'll explain to you. There's a, a publication on there that'll explain like what's taxed. Like there's tons of misconceptions about what is and isn't taxed, and it'll explain all of that to you. And so you'll see, um, you know, w- how you contribute. How are you personally contributing? Like when you go buy your your turkey loads for the spring or you go buy your new rifle, that is contributing directly back to the state of Indiana and it'll explain to you how. And just so everybody knows, the United States Department of Interior releases the appropriations every year. It's public. You can track every single state. Um, I'm trying to scroll through it quick enough, but I doubt I'm going to get to it. Do you remember offhand, Amanda, what we got last year at this? Last um, I got the. I don't know if it's listed on there yet. I I pulled up the the the, the documents that they send me. Um, so what what is going to come out this year is PR. We're getting uh, seven million. No, oh, yeah, seven million seven hundred sixteen thousand approximately from PR. And then DJ is three million three hundred fifty-two thousand, and so it's about what eleven eleven million dollars that we're getting from from the feds. And that's generated solely for those of you listening. That's generated solely because of either hunting and fishing licenses, or ammunition, or firearm sales. Now, do bow or archery equipment yep. qualify? Yep bow archery equipment qualifies and so really it's all of our um shooting type of equipment that we would be taking the animals with and not all that's that's a sticking point that some some folks are um gets a little bit frustrated with because not all um so like our air guns Mm -hmm. that are um, being suggested for seasons right now yeah those things aren't currently subject to that tax like like bows and arrows are and rifles and shotguns they are all well vetted into the system and have to participate in in the, in the program but the air gun manufacturers are, are not and now do you think that's more or less a result of them just being still very new on the scene yeah. or do you do you envision maybe that i know you're you don't have a crystal ball for a federal yeah. act inclusion of something but do you foresee is it do you think that's why I think folks are trying to get there and I don't think they're adverse to it. So I don't think they're fighting against it. Um, I don't know what the lift is um, congressionally to, to add them Mm -hmm. as part of the the code, right? Because it's probably in the federal code to add them to that. So I don't understand the the lift that goes on there, but it probably is a, I mean, it's it's an act of Congress, right? Sure. Yep. 
and I, said, I know that's a sticking point for for me personally, just as a sportsman. You know, if if they're going to be allowed in, let's let them generate the same funds. However, I do understand anytime you open up a a code or a law to be discussed, there's there's a risk as well because then the whole thing's visited. Yeah, and so, it took. I mean, there was the modernization for the PR modernization that happened this this last this session. Yes, and. And, you know, that took years and years in the making. I mean, we've we've probably been talking about that for a long time, <laughs> my, so this, my entire career. Yeah, this was and, this was a really big deal. And I you know, could you explain just in kind of a condensed cliff notes, what exactly did the modernization do? Because it, it's really beneficial. If I understanding right, didn't some of it now we can spend it on hunting ed and like outreach? Yep. Yeah, you've always been able to spend it on edu- hunter education. Okay. And but what it's done is kind of broaden the definition of education, and it's so the on the opposite side, the PR side or not the PR, the DJ side. Um, so the fishing side has a much more um, liberal maybe de- definition of what education could be, and so really we could use we've always been able to use our PR or DJ dollars sure. for um, education on aquatic systems, for example, or not just strictly fishing education. It's less and stringent. It's not as yeah, defined. It's, yeah, it's way less stringent. And so they've tried to mirror that on the on the hunting side in this PR modernization. So it should allow us to do um, a, a broader breadth of, of education Mm-hmm. And not just specifically a hunting education, but um, really just education around wildlife management, conservation, hunting, all of that can then can happen, which makes for a much better program. Like when you think programmatically, how you get people from being um, just knowledgeable about the outdoors to actually being able to participate as a hunter, it takes more than just how to hunt program to do that. Yes. And so this this modernization allows us to kind of build a more holistic program to push people through that entire funnel that it takes to re- recruit new hunters. Mm-hmm. And so it does that. And it also allows us to, um, to to do some more marketing things that we've never been able to been able to do before. So um, and that took it, years to do. So I know if any of you listening out there like me, where the sticking point for the airbows and such is one of your points of this, just understand if it does get rolling that direction, we might be looking at 10, 12, 15 years. Yeah, it's, and, and they've been talking about air guns and airbows for years. So we're years down the path, right. but we still probably have more years to go. So. Yep. And then the other flip, you know, the flip side of them are it's more it's it's more options and that Mm -hmm. may mean more people getting involved. Yep. There's always there's always two sides to every coin. There is. And I know I mean, I'm sure everybody remembers the whole crossbow issue in Indiana when we first introduced crossbows as a legal means of taking taking deer. And oh, did that that cause a stir? Oh yeah, yeah. That was a small stir. And I just I was in at that point in my career, I was in our hunting kind of education out our R three program, our hunting R three program at the yeah. time. And so I was teaching, actively teaching people in that funnel like how to become a hunter. And I had no opinion one way or the other, to be honest, on crossbow, no crossbow. I'd never personally had a crossbow, so yeah. I didn't didn't have a feeling one way or another. But I go in and I'm teaching these classes <laughs> and I had a whole breadth of equipment to show people. And when we were 
it was amazing to watch folks that were, you know, not our traditional customer. Like, so they want to learn how to hunt, but they don't really have the experiences and probably the social network that a lot of us and maybe your listeners have. Mm -hmm. Um, And so they, the thought of bringing a a firearm into their house, like their spouse maybe wasn't excited about that. And so that was a barrier right off the get go. And then, just that huge learning curve of traditional archery equipment was also this barrier. And then you'd put this crossbow in their hand and they'd be like money in a minute. (laughs) I was like, wow. And I always, I said for years and it would make, I remember making a few of our, you know, guys mad guys that I've known for years and years and years, I'd say, well, it's, it's gun enough. Like you have to realize that if we're going to broaden this span of people that like to hunt, Mm-hmm. We have to be accommodating in some ways, and I, I don't know that I'm interested in a crossbow, but it is clear to me after sitting with these folks that a crossbow is gun enough for them. Like it, it provides them with an ease of entry that mm-hmm. they don't have to fight a spouse over. They don't have to spend eons of hours practicing, but they can get accurate and feel like they can be produce a humane kill, right? Which so so many of these people are worried about that are yes. brand new hunters. And I just remember having those conversations with guys and they're like, but <laughs> like, I know, but I'm telling you, it's, a, it's good enough and it's going to be a game changer. And I think we saw some of that and, but we also saw that it didn't really have a ton of impact on our overall, overall harvest. Too, True. Right? Yeah. So, harvest wise, it didn't make a huge impact no. necessarily when it didn't make a measurable impact for it to be an argument for or against them. No, nope. would probably be the best way to put it. And they yes. generate PR funds. So, Hey. Yeah, it's a win-win in that way. Eventually, I think guys are okay with it now. Or, or what? How many years into it? And I, I don't hear too much complaints about that today. But whew, for a while. <laughs> <laughs> Let's not even bring up the one buck rule and two buck rule. Um, yeah i don't know <laughs> the uh so let, let's let's circle back i know we kind of mentioned it but then we didn't actually go into it i know one of the things that we both wanted to touch on was kind of the cwd, CWD surveillance yep. and i know that was that's been a really big hot button issue and i know i have a wide range of friends that think we need to do nothing it's not real it's made up it's well it's real it's a real disease i think anybody can acknowledge that but we do have to have a plan right no matter where you stand on it or how you think we should handle it I, I I remember listening to Nancy, and I forget Nancy, what's Nancy's last name, the veterinarian. Bodecker. Bodecker. I remember listening to her, and you know, she's like, "I you may sit on both sides of this and such, but we need to, we do have to have a plan because it's here. It's gonna get here eventually. It's not a matter of when. It's right. And, it's and we need a to know when we. Yeah, it's probably more a matter of when we detect it. it yeah. I mean, there's a strong possibility that it's it's here already. Sure. And and yeah, I think that's it's it's us being honest that we need a plan we've been working on a plan and and i think we're to the point where we have a solid plan and everybody's comfortable with the direction that that we're going to go internally and so we're starting to to share um just our first attempt at real surveillance i mean we've been doing surveillance up in those kind of hot spot areas where Mm -hmm. we have cwd close to indiana so on our michigan border that northeast corner and then on our illinois border on that northwest um, corner just south of chicago there yep and we've been doing some some more uh, monitoring surveillance in in that that piece of the state but largely the rest of indiana has been hit or miss and 
And so we've got a, a pretty good three-pronged strategy that Joe and Nancy and the team have, have come up with. And, and we're going to kind of look to do one of those two, those that probably that Northeast or Northwest, and that's up to Joe and, and Nancy to, to figure out and do some real mandatory surveillance there. Okay. Um, in a very small, small county, you know, small area, um, very limited scope of mandatory. And then at the same time, we're going to be doing like a plan to monitor the entire state. And we, we can't afford, I mean, Indiana doesn't have the budget to afford to just do a, a monitoring program that's going to get our surveillance program that's going to get us to a, a high enough um, confidence interval that we can, you know, believe that we, you know, we're CWF, CWD free at a 1%, you know, detection rate or whatever. Yeah. Joe could tell you all of the devil the right. details of that. And for those listening, we, just really briefly, the confidence interval increases the more data you collect, the more samples yep. you collect. So that it, that's the kind of boiled down version. So the more deer we test, the higher that gets. And there's a threshold statistically that you can trust more and more as that grows. As that grows. Exactly. And so we can't afford to like test the number of deer that it would take across the whole state, right. To get there. But what we can do is identify, you know, break the state into probably eight or 10 chunks, but probably eight chunks and, and pick, you know, that group of counties that we, we, we decide on and and we're going to do um voluntary not mandatory but voluntary surveillance in that space and we think that we can maybe do some incentives a little bit like we did for ehd not ehd but btb down Mm -hmm. in the that eastern southeastern kind of swath of the state and do that and every year we just rotate those those regions right and so over time we eventually will have surveyed the whole state and know that you know we are confident that we don't have cwd because we are sampling at a rate that says that if it's there it's less than one percent sure and it you know finding it at that lower percent is really the important part because that's how you're going to be able to can like really keep it at as much at bay as you can and so that's kind of prong number two and then the third prong is we're going to be partnering with um, probably taxidermists is where we're going to start and and paying taxidermists to collect those high value samples of, of older bucks because that's generally what goes to a taxidermist. Yep. And those older bucks will, you know, give us a more um, scattered sample across the state so that we're always sampling across the state and the ones that we're getting that in that way are the highest value. And so every year we'll have that kind of pool of data, plus we'll have our, our voluntary um, area that we're working in, and then we'll have our mandatory, like, hotspot. And the hotspot, like, if we do those two spaces for a few years and, and we're just trying to detect that that 1% or a little less and we're mm-hmm. not finding anything, like, you know, that may or, you know, may not be necessary just depending on what you know, what things look like as we, depending on the number you guys test and the results and such. So it may slide back to uh, voluntary instead of mandatory. Gotcha. Yep. But it's, you know, that I think are the positive news in all of CWD is, you know, the Illinois 
situation is our closest. I mean, we're just, I think we're less than 20 miles from the border where. I think 12 the, was the number I remember Nancy stating. Yeah, it was 12 or 13, close. something like that. Yeah, it's close. I mean, that's, that's close, right? But Illinois has done a tremendous job at, um, is at going in in that very tight little location and, and doing as much as they can to knock that herd back. And I mean, that's really key to keep, keep that disease as close to that point as possible, right? And it's like a, I think it's a one mile zone around the, the site of, of the deer and, and they just really go in and try to knock it back as, as much as possible. And so they've done a wonderful job, which if they do a really good job there. That means that slows the spread and, um, and hopefully it hasn't walked into Indiana, but you know, that's, I think that's our greatest risk right, right now is walking in from Illinois. Michigan's also done a really good job of management um, where they found it, but they're a little farther away. I think it's somewhere mm-hmm. in the like 50 mile range. And so now just, know, for, just for anybody listening, the concern over it is, you know, it, it does, it is a fatal disease, correct? If a deer gets it and isn't killed by either car, human interference, predators, it will die. It will die. Yeah. yeah. You, you don't survive CWD. Like CWD is fatal for, for deer and they can live a while with it. So mm-hmm. that's the other like really scary thing about CWD is you have infected deer on the landscape for a while. And that gives them plenty of time to infect their, their kind of home group. Right. And so does especially because they're pretty, they're a little more social than, than the bucks. And so their family group and it's, they believe it's spread often through contact. And so nose to nose contact mm-hmm. and, and does have that behavior a little more than, than a, than a buck does. But, you know, an infected buck has a much greater um, range. And so it could be infecting other doe herds right mm-hmm. and so yeah it's it's a scary disease and it doesn't go away like once it's on the landscape it like there's research that says it can attach to the soil and yeah yep taken up into plants and so i and i think i i just out of i have to because i have a diverse amount of listeners i have to kind of play the devil's advocate so now the yep. line I hear a lot of people's concern is, you know, there hasn't been a plan, whether it be out west where it was originally uh, discovered, Wisconsin, Illinois, Michigan. There hasn't been anything that has effectively stopped it. Nope. We, we merely slow it down, correct? We merely slow it down, yeah. So then I guess we- at what point, and this isn't, this is probably too big of a question, but at what point do we say we're diverting too many resources to something that inevitably we can't control? And I think that's a, that is, it's probably a question that not, that's a question that not the, the agent agency can't answer by themselves. Right. Yep. Because ultimately it is our responsibility to manage the resource. But as I said earlier, it's for the people. Yeah. And if at some point, you know, we get to a place where we're just spending so much resources that the public sees, like, we're not, you know, we're not doing our diligence in other ways. Like, th- that is absolutely a conversation that the the citizens and the agency need to all be very aware of 
you know, what that line looks like. Yeah. And, and, and how, how comfortable are we with what level of management, you know, that, that we're wanting to do in, in Indiana? Um, you know, mm-hmm. the agency's going to have recommendations and those recommendations, I think, will be, you know, obviously vetted through our partners and that's our deer hunting groups. And I'm sure there'll be public comment opportunities available, just knowing how Joe Caudell does his, his business. Yeah. <laughs> and, it, you know, that's a, it's, a, it's got to be a conversation because it's, it's the public's resource. And I guess maybe that's where I was heading with that question is just wanting to know if, you know, I knew I knew the answer was going to be very welcoming to public dialogue and discussion because that's just how you guys are operating, which is awesome. But, you know, if you are a listener to this and it becomes, you know, say, heaven forbid, we discover CWD in two or three years and we're fighting it for years. And, you know, whenever you guys at the DFW or Joe or somebody reaches out to us for public input, uh, I know at times Joe has shared the uh, survey. I think the after hunter success survey was less than 5% of successful hunters. And right. that's frustrating to me. And I know it's frustrating to Joe, but unfortunately that was an increase from years prior. So I guess yeah, exactly. I just, I want to stress to every listener, you know, you guys want public input. Yeah, you want absolutely. it. Absolutely. Put forth your thoughts. Don't, don't just log into Facebook and comment on and complain about them. You know, reach out to <laughs> Joe, reach out to, to, yeah, to Amanda, reach out me. to everybody. And uh, yeah, I'm, I mean, we have pretty big shoulders and both of us have got it grown tough enough, you know, that, you know, our skin isn't, isn't, isn't so thin. We can't handle that, that kind of, that kind of dialogue. And so, you know, we absolutely want to have those, those conversations, whether it's CWD or anything, you know, trout stocking or boat ramp repair or what's happening on your local fish and wildlife area. It it doesn't matter what the issue is. Um, You know, it's our job to, to listen and and try to be better i mean that's mm-hmm. that's what i go to work to do every day is try to make us better yep and and i can make it better you know from the vision i have in my head or the public can really be involved right and and be a, a player in that and that makes for a much better vision than just you know myself and joe you know sitting around being like well what about yeah and it, and it probably in essence takes a little bit of stress off you guys too knowing you have the public input the public support and maybe not even support just you've have that 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 trust from them is flowing both directions well yeah i mean when you got to go in and do rule changes and you know ask for different levels of funding or whatever Mm -hmm. you know we have to face as we move forward if i know where our public stands on that then I can walk into my boss's office, the director of the department, right? And we can walk over to the governor's office and say, you know, we're, we have this issue and we have heard from the public and by the public, we mean this. Yeah. And, and this is, you know, there's some that don't agree, but we are hearing largely, this is, this is the direction they want us to hear. That is a much more comfortable place than having to go, well, yeah, we think we're okay. <laughs> right. This is Amanda I mean, and Joe's opinion. Nobody else's. Yeah. That that doesn't that that just doesn't have the significance behind it. Not that you, you guys know, aren't important. I didn't mean it that way. No, but. no. It's 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 real. Like that's that is the truth. And and we've operated. I mean, not intentionally. It's just sometimes it's hard to get the public to. It is. Yep. To really um, invest in 
because it's their resources, right? It's not my resources or Joe's resources or, you know, that local property manager's resources. This is a public resource. Yep. And, and, you know, they have, I mean, we want them to have a role in, in managing that. I mean, at the end of the day, you know, our authority keeps us within the sideboards, right? So sure. our authority says we're managing for healthy fish and wildlife populations. And so I'm not going to be able to like throw that out the window, but you know, we're always, always looking to put the best conservation on the landscape that the public is interested in us doing. Yep. And, and sometimes it's really hard to understand what the public is interested in us doing because it's hard to get them to talk to us. Yep. Everybody listening, you heard that. I mean, this is the director of the division of fish and wildlife. They want our input. They want our engagement you know, take a step and do it. It doesn't take long. I mean, the hunter, the, uh, the deer survey that Joe just sent out, I'm sure you're aware of that. You know, that was just discussed on the last episode. I just did it. I finally found time six days ago to do it. You know, that's just a small way to help Joe, the more data that they can get, um, the better. And, and that goes for any one of, we just, I just sat at the round table meeting and the guys were talking about squirrel season and, and, you know, Joe's done a really good job of opening it up for deer, but I mean, it's same goes, same goes for small game management or your local, like if you love to, to hunt at one of our fish and wildlife areas, like your best voice is to walk in and talk to that property manager because yes, you know, he makes those decisions or she makes those decisions for that property. And, and if they don't hear from the public, then they are going to do what feels right for them. But if if they have people walking in, they're certainly going to listen to it. That's a, that, excellent points, and I don't we're 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 pushing on time, and I don't want to take too much of your time. I only have two more questions for you, sure, um, or two more topics. And the first one isn't necessarily deer centered, if I've read all of it right. But there's this new state wildlife action plan, which, okay. if I remember right, either you're, I know you're spearheading it, or did you author it? Um, so I was part of the writing team whenever okay. the, so it was published in 2015, I think now, so it's not brand new, but, um, I was part of the team that wrote that, that document mm-hmm. and it was our second, our second version of it. And it was, it was a huge change in, in work for me because I'd spent my career doing like public outreach and education, you know, hunting and fishing kinds of things. And then to move to planning, a state wildlife action plan was a huge huge shift but it's a it was it's a really cool it was a really cool opportunity for me to grow professionally but it we're utilizing that plan today to to try our best to make you know fish and wildlife management based in the best science that that we can do and that plan does a great job of of identifying um, our species of greatest conservation need which are those species in indiana that are on our um, endangered lists or threatened list and our special concern. And so those are the species that I like to say that are in, in, in greatest need of conservation. Right. Mm-hmm. And then it identifies all of the threats to those species and the appropriate actions. And honestly, that program that I mentioned that grasslands, grasslands for game birds and songbirds, that program came out of a threat um, in the action plan. And, and it's very much, um, you know, a, a program that's going to help those special concern 
species, but at the same time, it's going to carry a whole suite of, of game species along with it to put really great grassland habitat on the ground. And then now we're pairing it with this public access component, so it's just going to get more people on the landscape, you know, enjoying the things that we love to do, like hunting and fishing. So it's, like, there's a ton of opportunity with the action plan to, um, to drive the work of the, of the division. And it doesn't necessarily, I think some people, even my staff, when we first started talking about it, was afraid it was going to change our focus. And I keep telling them that our authority says that we manage for healthy fish and wildlife <laughs> populations, and that is never changing, folks. And this plan just gives us some direction on on, on how to make the right decisions to to do that work. There's quite a few. I'm actually looking at the identified state endangered and special concern. Uh, yeah, it breaks like it down. Forty four species, I believe, broken That's down funny. into groups of mammals, birds, fish, mollusks, amphibians, and reptiles. There's a lot yep. of them. Yeah, it's um, yeah, it's unfortunate, right, that we we have that many issues, I guess. But it's it it also is a ton of opportunity for for us to think of ways to to be better and put better conservation on the land. Um, one of the the biggest, and it's a fish it's a fish side of it, but one of our greatest um, suites of endangered species are those mollusks which, you know, they're not the most sexy of species. And most people would be like, who cares? <laughs> but they're they pivotal are, for water health, though, right? Yeah, they're really important. It, it, it goes to show you what, what's happening in our stream systems in Indiana. Um, they're very tied to the fish population. So they're, they're really unique um, species on how they reproduce. Like they, they're very tied to a very specific species of fish in order to be successful at reproduction. And then a very specific type of habitat within a stream system, and that's what's caused them to have have issues. And you know, Indiana, we have a lot of sediment that goes into our river and stream systems, and and that's like one of the most detrimental things to our, to to that suite of species. But the things that you do to protect them are terrestrial. They're, it's almost all terrestrial activities, right? So it's putting good management practices on the landscape around those bodies of water and so it, it's it's things like you know pl not like planting great habitat up along your, your stream and so maybe putting grasslands or reforesting a a, a bottomland hard hard like hardwood forested area mm -hmm. and so it's putting those buffers around our waterways to slow water down you know, to, to filter that water before it gets into the stream system which any of us that hunt and fish know that those corridors are corridors for movement of wildlife. And if, yes. if we have those along our, our waterways, then, you know, we're, you know, we're not only helping those mussels in the stream, but we're also providing places for deer and turkey and rabbits and, and all of the species that we're out pursuing to move throughout that landscape. I'm a, I'm a, deer habitat consultant on the side and it's amazing how if you just enter into habitat stuff like you just described with conservation in mind the benefits are endless across the board you know you're talking about the water impact of plantings right up to the stream bank and ensuring that it the erosion factor isn't there and the sediment factor doesn't dump in and the filtration but you're also selfishly getting a corridor of travel for deer like it all ties together it does all tie together it's just Sometimes we forget to talk about that. <laughs> right. Which it's more than hunting and fishing. 
it is for the hunting and fishing. I appreciate you tying that all back together. So, so I appreciate you like following my crazy randomness. So <laughs> yes, most definitely. Um, this has been this has been incredible. So in closing, I know that there's one question that I pose at the end of it, and um, it might it's a little bit of a forecast for you if you could sit back and and look in five years. You know, hopefully you're still there and serving us. Uh, hopefully yep. you break Mark Ryder's record. Um, oh, I don't know about that. <laughs> <laughs> well, you've only been in the DNR for 10 years or the DFW, right? Oh, so, that's right. Yeah. yeah, that was, that was not accurate. <laughs> uh, so in, in five years, what do you hope to have accomplished as the director of DFW? It, I, so I think my, um, my end goal, and I don't know if it's ever an end goal, because I don't think there's an end to any of it, but um, when I look today, I, I feel like we, we as the conservation community, um, we as hunters and anglers, we get so in, ingrained in that little piece of the world that, that we care about, that we forget to take that step up. And, and see just the things we talked about, that that little planting along the stream has impacts way greater than the mussels in the stream that it's, it's impacting the whole wildlife corridor and how things are connected. And so as I look out five years, what I hope is that we have this really, really engaged citizenry and conservation community, those folks that are like closest to it, that we can all have this constant conversation about what good conservation looks like in Indiana. And so that it's not just the idea in my head that we're working towards, but it's this shared vision of, of making Indiana a place that is conservation minded. And, you know, I, I go to these national meetings and I listen to you know, like some of these other states and you hear the work that's happening with their, their partners and their conservation organizations. And, and we do a lot of that in Indiana, but sometimes it's, it's not as coordinated and orchestrated as what I think it could be. And to somehow take that momentum that we have individually and bring it together as a whole, mm-hmm. I think the synergy would be incredibly impactful and I would hope that that impact would then influence that greater population of people just so they would start to see that it matters if we have good habitat on the landscape. It matters that we you know, are ensuring that we have good water quality and, and that the land that we're planting our, our food in is, you know, in good, has good soil quality so that we're consuming, you know, foods that are, that are grown in healthy soil situations. Yes. That as conservationists, we all have a role in that and, and that we can focus on those things as opposed to, you know, whatever type of equipment that, you know, we're worried about coming into whatever season and, <laughs> And we, and we can rise above some of that yeah. and focus on, on that bigger picture of, of good, healthy ecosystems that are producing wonderful um, habitats, wonderful wildlife populations that we're all able to get out and enjoy in whatever ways we like to enjoy it. You know, for me, it's, it's always been hunting and fishing, but I'm learning to, to like, pollinators and understand what those look like and i'll never be a birder but, <laughs> <laughs> but 
I have people that are trying to get me there all the time, and I do appreciate all of that. But but as I've learned, the more you do for everything, I, I the more strips. You know, I've I've started planting some pollination strips and such. The birds just come. They do, and you learn to appreciate come. it. It's amazing just sitting and doing stuff, and you don't understand all the benefits. You know, you get to sit and watch birds that you never even knew existed, or you were it was a rare sighting, and now they're on your property, right? And they're and, partaking, and it's awesome. Yeah, and. I- I love to watch it all. I just am not, I just never know. They're just all little brown birds to me. <laughs> but I I do, I love to go out with our, our, our ornithologist, our staff ornithologist, and she's constantly trying to teach me things. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm not a very quick learner on birds. That's what I'm learning. Fish, on the other hand, our, our fisheries biologist, now he's, he's taught me a whole lot. But I figured those out, but I can't do birds, apparently. <laughs> That's awesome. So I... I Unless you have anything else you would, I, I'll, I'll sit here and talk to you all night, but unless you have anything else to add, I just want to thank you on behalf of every single listener, every single deer hunter out there. Um, it means a lot when you guys are willing to, you know, communicate with us and open up and talk. And it really creates a public trust that I know you guys have constantly instilled that mindset. I know at least I've absorbed it from Joe and Nancy and you and Mark before you um, was, was open. And it's just, it means a lot. Just know that. I appreciate that. And I appreciate the opportunity to talk to you and share where I hope we end up. And if there ever there's questions or things that you want to talk about, you know how to get a hold of us. And, you know, whether it's me or somebody on staff, any of us are available for the conversation and we'd be happy to do it. Yep. That's why the podcast exists. So if there's anything ever deer specific that, you know, comes across and you're like, man, we really need to get a hold of as many hunters as possible. Keep me in mind, contact me and send somebody our way and we will always be here for engagement and education of the hunter base. Well, I, I appreciate that. And I certainly hope that we don't have to talk about CWD anytime soon, but my biggest fear is that's, that's on our doorstep and, and we'll be, we'll be needing a lot of help then. So (laughs) let's just hope it's not, let's hope it's a few years out. Yeah. If not, never. (laughs) Yeah. If not ever, please. Well, thank you so much. I'm going to go ahead and uh, wrap this up. So thank you to everybody listening to this. Thank you to Amanda. And uh, we'll catch you on the next time.